And as you guys uh, grab your seats, go ahead and buckle your seatbelts uh, this morning, because what we're going to be doing is a little different um, than what we've than what we normally do. We're going through the Gospel of John verse by verse, um, and today we'll, we'll come to an interesting passage that we want to talk about. But I want to start just if you have a, a Bible this morning, go ahead and hold it up. Show me your Bible, even if you're looking at your phone. You, you know, show me. Uh, your phone. Do you believe that what you are holding in your hand is the very word of God? Do you believe that? Yeah. That's a good start. All right. And then do you believe specifically that I'm assuming everyone in this room, unless we, maybe a couple people brought their Greek New Testament or their Hebrew uh, Old Testament this morning. Do you believe that what you are holding in your hand in English is an accurate representation of what God actually said. Do you believe that? Okay, you guys got a little less confident there. But good, that's the right answer. Yes, we believe it. Well, today we want to talk about why do we believe that? Because we'll, we get to a passage in John that makes us ask, wait, how, how, do, how, how did I get this in my hands? We should be asking good questions about that. And we're also going to have to address the questions that the world wants to throw at the church about the Bible. I mean, you go out on a college campus or you go out and you listen to what people say on the news and they're going to paint a certain picture about the Bible. And they want to make it sound unreliable. Ideas of men that, oh, you know, it's been translated so many times and it's kind of a big game of telephone and all of that. Is that true? How, how can we be confident in what we are holding in our hands today? And so let's take our Bibles and let's open them up to the beginning of John chapter 8. We're starting a new series today where we'll look at John chapter 8 and John chapter 9 together. John 8 and John 9. And technically they group the last verse of chapter 7 with, um, with John chapter 8 here, 753. But if you open it up, if you have the English Standard Version like I'm using you'll notice that when you get to verse 53, there's two brackets around that all the way. Then there's two brackets at the end of verse 11. And even we put it on the, the note sheet for you, which we copied from the English Standard Version. You'll notice a little note right before it all starts that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. What in the world is that talking about? Why is that note in our Bibles, what does it mean? And then does that raise questions of, okay, well, wait, is this book reliable? Is this actually what God said? Has it been translated so many times? And we want to answer those questions today. And it's my belief that as we dig in and we ask those questions, you know what we're going to find? You know what? This is the word of God. And what we're holding in our hands is an accurate representation of what God actually said. And I think you will leave here today, even though we might start by scratching our heads at that, at that note, I think you will leave here today with more confidence in the Bible that you hold in your hands than you've ever had before. In fact, let's write that down for point number one this morning, and we're going to talk about that. Gain confidence in your Bible. Gain confidence in your Bible. And I'm not even just saying the Bible, but I'm saying the Bible that you hold in your hand. I want you to be confident that, no, this is the Word of God. And so I want to take some time kind of away from John itself to address the question of how did we get our Bibles? How did the Bible go from God 
to you sitting right here at Pathways Middle School on September 20th, 2020. You holding a copy of God's word in your hand. How did that happen? And we're going to have about 30 minutes to talk about that today. If you want something more, if you've got your worksheet and you flip it over to the back, one thing I would recommend, if, if 30 minutes isn't enough and you would like 12 hours of this, um, right there there's a lecture series listed by Mike Fabares, which if that name sounds familiar, he's the pastor of the Sending Church that uh, sent us and sent me here. But he, there's 12 lectures on the origins of the Bible. And even we're going to kind of borrow the main outline from that and go through it today to look at six steps of how the Bible got from God to you specifically, and how we should, once we actually examine what those were, we should leave with more confidence than ever in the Bibles that we hold in our hands. So if you look there at point number one, there's six blanks below that where we want to talk through these six steps. And the first one is revelation. Revelation. And even you catch there in the word revelation, the root of the word reveal that God has revealed something that otherwise we wouldn't have known. And theologians kind of break this into two categories. First, there is general revelation, ways that God has revealed himself generally. And exhibit A of that is creation. Uh, Psalm 19, verse 1 says, or if you woke up this morning and watched the sunrise, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens are revealing something about God to us. And even Romans 1 says creation tells us so much about God that even that alone, we're without excuse in understanding God. We also know that the conscience, and we're born with a sense of right and wrong. That's a way God has revealed himself. But then we get from general revelation to special revelation, more specific and clear ways that God has revealed himself. From the beginning of the Bible, God talking to Adam and Eve to the end of the Bible to the book of Revelation, when an angel appears to John and he sees a vision of the resurrected and glorified Christ. And the greatest example we have of special revelation is the Bible, where God spoke to, through men. And that brings us quickly to step two, which is inspiration. Inspiration. God has revealed something, but he's done it through inspiration. He has used men to write his word. And that concept is all over the Bible, going back to the Old Testament and the prophet saying, thus says the Lord. But there's two passages that really nail it down for us. And the first we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Some of you, my, your translation of the Bible might say, all scripture is inspired by God. I, I like the ESV here because literally the Greek word is theopneustos, which theos is God, pneustos is breath. It's kind of a word that Paul is putting together to describe it. All scripture is God breathed. And then when the Bible got translated into Latin, they used inspirata, which is where we get inspiration from, which is the, the same idea. Technically, inspired, we're talking about breath, but that word's kind of been watered down throughout the ages. You might, you know, hear a great song and say, man, I feel inspired. Well, I don't think by that you mean you're about to write scripture, do you? At least I hope that's not what you mean, right? Uh, but literally, when we're talking about inspiration in a biblical sense, it's that God has breathed out this word. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then the other passage that describes this to us is 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, the men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God used men, and it reflected their personality and even their vocabulary, but it was God using them to say exactly what he wanted them to say. I mean, an illustration would be, I mean, if I took my guitar and played a little bit with it, and then I took Larry's guitar over here and played a little bit with it, what they would sound a little different. But it's still me pressing the strings to make the guitar say, so to speak, whatever I want it to say. God used Peter and God used Paul, and they were different dudes, and they sound different, but God used them to say exactly what he wanted them to say, down to the very words. And we want to be clear about what we believe. We don't believe this book is inspired in a general sense, you know, the ideas here. No, the very words that these people wrote were exactly what God wanted them to write. And one of the reasons I know that is because that's what Jesus believes. If you've been reading through the Bible with us, even this week we see Jesus in an argument with the Sadducees basing his argument off of specific words and the tense of the word in the Old Testament. Jesus believed that down to the very words, this is the word of God. And so we believe that. And that's why we believe that the Bible, we use words like inerrant, that the Bible is without error, that the Bible is infallible. There is nothing that it teaches that is wrong. We believe that because if God wrote it, that's the way it must be. It is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Now, why do we believe that? I mean, there's, there's a few good reasons. One is predictive prophecy. There is no book in the world like this book as far as telling things that are going to happen before they happen. Even this week in the book of Isaiah, he prophesies how Babylon is going to be judged by the invasion of the Medes. Guess what happened? Babylon, hundreds of years later, was invaded by the Medes, exactly like the Bible said it was. And then, I mean, we could spend the whole day talking about all the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's no book like this. The other thing is, this book was confirmed by miraculous signs. And even we think, what was up with all the miracles? Well, many times it was to confirm Scripture. When do we see kind of the first huge rash of miracles in the Bible? Exodus, the plagues in Egypt, the Red Sea, the wilderness. When were the first five books of the Bible written? Same time through Moses, and it's as God is, is giving his, hey, guys, this is me talking. This is not a man talking. This is God speaking through Moses. So we believe that the Bible is inspired. It is the word of God, down to the very words. So then we have to ask, okay, well, the Bible, we think of it as a book, but at least in English, we, we consider, well, it's, there's 66 books in here. So how did, how, did we, how did we get to these 66 books specifically? That's another good question. And that brings us to step number three, canonicity. Canonicity. 
And no, the cannon that goes boom, that has two ends in it. So this is not that kind of cannon. Cannon with one end is basically like a ruler, like a measuring stick, something that, hey, this is the standard that we measure everything else by. And how did we get the Bible? Well, well this is the word that we use to describe that. But how do we know that the books we have, that you have in your Bible today, are God's word, and other books that were written around the same time aren't God's word? How do we know that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are God's word, but the Gospel of Thomas or other things that maybe you've heard about over the years, that they're not God's word? And there's a lot that's been said about this, especially over the last 20 years. Do you remember the the book and the movie, The Da Vinci Code. Nod at me if you remember. I've never seen the movie or read the book, but it, there was a lot that came out because even though it's a, it's a fiction book, the, the author starts throwing some ideas and making some claims in there through the, through the guise of this prof, Harvard professor in the book who says things like, well, you know, there were like 80 gospels, but the church kind of whittled it down to Four, right? And that it was all Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. They kind of got together and decided what was the Bible and, and then threw out the stuff that they didn't like. Well, here's the thing. I mean, that is fiction in every sense of the word. Not only is it in a fictitious book, that's just not what happened at all. Um, and the way we want to think about it is not the church got together and authorized the, the canon, that the church determined what was scripture and what was not. If you want to write down a one-sentence explanation of what I mean by canonicity, which is probably a word you haven't used this week, won't use this week, this is what I mean when I'm talking about that. The church did not determine the canon, it discovered the canon. The church did not determine the canon, it discovered the canon. Again, let me use an illustration. Did Sir Isaac Newton determine the law of gravity? There, somebody's brave enough. No, he did not. He discovered it. Guess what? The, the law of gravity has been there for a long time, like since creation. It was already there, but he discovered it and he articulated it. The canon was already there. God had already decided what was scripture and what wasn't. And the church didn't determine that. They discovered it. And guess what? When you actually dig into the history, it was pretty obvious right away. There actually wasn't a lot of debate about it. There were a few books that are in Scripture that some people were like, you know, like Esther, but it doesn't mention God, but we clearly understand it. And it clearly, it was, no, certain books were clearly right away accepted and copied and transmitted all over the world because people knew this was Scripture. And a couple things, when people like Dan Brown, the author of the Da Vinci Code, want to throw out the Council of Nicaea, they don't know what they're talking about. Because the Council of Nicaea wasn't about the books of the Bible. It was about the deity of Christ. Because there was this pastor named Arius saying, well, Jesus wasn't God. Jesus was created and, and other things like that. And they got together and the vote was like 300 something to two. That, no, that's heresy. Jesus was not created. Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal. So it was a relatively uncontroversial thing that now they want to go back and talk about. And so then, well, how did they discover the canon? Well, the Old Testament was pretty easy because the Old Testament basically existed when Jesus was around and Jesus comes along and puts a big stamp of approval on the Old Testament. And I don't know about you, but if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me, right? So then, well, what about the New Testament? Because Jesus didn't come back and say, here you go. Well, he did say some things ahead of time. 
that we'll see later in John when he promised to the apostles, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and he's going to cause you to remember all that I've said. And the New Testament books, for the most part, they have clear apostolic connections. Even the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, who was an eyewitness to everything he was talking about. Same with Matthew. Through history, it seems like the Gospel of Luke was getting a lot of his information from the Apostle Paul, and Mark was getting a lot of his information from the Apostle Peter. And clearly, and by the way, when people throw out the Gospel of Thomas and things like that, there's no connection between those books and that actual person. Those books were usually written hundreds of years later by somebody that was a part of this group called the Gnostics, who, if you listen to that lecture series, Pastor Mike kind of describes this, the pot-smoking hippies of the third century. They got together and wrote these psychedelic books about Jesus, and they sound nothing like the history that the Gospels sound like. So the people that want to compare them, it's like, there is no comparison, and there wasn't ever any debate, serious debate, that any of those books should be included in the Scripture. But the New Testament books, they were connected to the apostles, they were promised by Christ, they were immediately recognized and embraced, and they're all consistent in what they teach. So we've got 66 books in our Bibles. But here's the problem, and this is where we're really going to get into what affects our passage today. There is no museum in the world to which you can go and behind glass with those, you know, special ultraviolet lights, like when you go look at the Constitution or something. There is no museum where you can go and look at the original copy of the Gospel of John. We don't have it. And, and guess what? We don't have the, the original copies that the, the guy actually wrote of any of these books. And they were written on things that, for the most part, probably it's rare when they survive 2,000 years. And so we don't have the original copy. So how do we get what we have now? And that's step number four, transmission. Transmission. And I know this might be a little more academic than what you signed up for when you got in your car and drove here this morning. So let me give you a break and, and give you an illustration here. But I mentioned earlier and when I started doing ministry, I was working with high school students. We were doing a lot of evangelism. And one thing I heard all the time, like I already mentioned, is, oh, the Bible. It's just a big game of telephone. How do we know that what we have is actually what it's said? You've probably heard somebody say something very similar to you if you've ever shared your faith. And so another way we evangelized with these high school students is we would go into all the public high school campuses, we'd bring a boatload of pizza, and we'd invite people, hey, come, give a, come get a free slice of pizza, and we want to talk to you about the Bible and, and the gospel. And so one day, we were talking about even why we can trust the Bible specifically, and so everybody's there munching on their pizza, and we kind of gave an illustration. We're like, all right, people say the Bible's like a game of telephone. Let's see. And we invited two groups of students to the front of the classroom. And one group played the game of telephone that we all know and love. And I forget what the phrase was that we told them to say, but, you know, it was almost comical by the end how far they had strayed from the original, right? It was way off. But then team number two, they got to write it all down. And so we showed the first person the phrase, and then they got to write it down and show it to the second person who got to write it down. And guess what it said at the end of the line? the exact same thing that it said at the beginning. Now, which one of those is more like what happened with the Bible? The second one. It's not like a game of telephone. Like, that's not even remotely close to what actually happened. It was written down, and then somebody copied that, and then somebody copied that, and then somebody else copied that. So now, 
it, it says the same thing. And in the tiny little places where it says something different, we have so many copies that we can see what happened usually. And, and even think, if that had gotten off, we would have been able to gather up all the scraps of paper and say, oh, clearly this is what happened. And, and that's what it is like. And we have so many copies of God's word. When you're looking at things that were written a long time ago, there's two things that you want to see. One, how many manuscripts are there of what we're looking at? And then two, what is the gap of time between when it was written and when these manuscripts are from? So let's compare the Bible to some other ancient books. Um, let's go first here. Let's talk about Plato. Uh, I, was, I have a degree in political studies, so I got to spend some time with Plato in my, not Plato, Plato, with Plato in my in my college days, reading, you know, The Republic, which nobody in college said, well, we don't know that Plato actually said this. And it's been changed so many times. How Nobody was saying that. How many manuscripts do we have? Seven. What's the gap between when Plato wrote it and those manuscripts that we have? 1,200 years. Nobody's questioning that. The, the other book outside of the Bible, the best book you're going to find outside the Bible as far as th this kind of stuff goes is Homer and the Iliad. How many manuscripts do we have of that? 643. Big improvement from Plato. What's the gap? 500 years. Getting better. Okay, what about the Bible? Even specifically, I think we're talking about the New Testament here. 5,738 multiple times more than the second best thing. And what's the gap? A hundred years. And that's even being conservative. There's, there's fragments of scripture that we have records of. We have the papyri, the, 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 you know, the writing material that they use. We have that going back all the way to, to the second century. Some would even argue some of them are from the first century. But even within a, a couple hundred years, we start finding entire copies of the Bible. One of the most amazing finds was this thing we call the Codex Sinaiticus, which Codex is like an old word for book, and then Sinaiticus, the first part of that is Sinai. They found it at Mount Sinai, where there's this place called St. Catherine's Monastery. And there was this European scholar that was there, and it was cold one night, and they're throwing some stuff on the fire. And he's like, what are you throwing on the fire? And he grabs it, and it's copies, it's now fragments of old copies of the Septuagint, which was the ancient Greek translation of the Bible. And he's like, yikes, you guys are throwing this on the fire? And then he started thinking, if they're throwing that on the fire, what else do they got around there? And a couple trips later, they say, oh, check this out. And guess what it was? A copy of the whole New Testament going back even to about 300 A.D. So even before all this Council of Nicaea, they created this stuff, we already have copies of the entire New Testament going back to that time. And he discovered that in the 1800s. And just as a parable of how youth is wasted on the young, I, I've actually been to St. Catherine's Monastery there at Mount Sinai as a 20-year-old, and I knew nothing about that story, right? I wish I could go back knowing what I know now, but youth is wasted on the young. Anyways, that was just a side note for free. Um, but that's talking about the, the New Testament, the Old Testament, it's amazing, and it's amazing how God has preserved these things over time. For a long time, the best manuscripts we had for the Old Testament were coming from about the year 900 A.D., which that's a long time after the Old Testament was written. 
And people loved to throw rocks at that and say, see, look at that, Gath. How do we know that's actually what it said? Well, then we started studying the Septuagint, which if you read about the Bible or you have a study Bible, sometimes you'll see this abbreviation LXX. That's not double extra large. Um, That's Roman numerals for 70, which is the Septuagint, which Alexander the Great, after he, you know, conquered the world, he wanted to make copies of all the, you know, important books. And so he had this group of 70 scholars translate the Old Testament. And this happened before Jesus Christ was even around. And so people started studying the Septuagint, and they compared that translation with the Old Testament Hebrew text that we had from 900 AD. So there's a thousand-year gap there. And guess what they said? The exact same thing. And then, again, this is a total God thing, the 1940s, some Israeli shepherd boy, it throws a rock into a cave and is like, I think I heard something break goes in and finds jars in there containing scrolls. In one of the first jars, he finds a scroll that's the entire book of Isaiah. And, and they found copies of all, a bunch of the different Old Testament. I think every Old Testament book except Esther, they, they found at least parts of. And you can go and you can buy the translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which again, they date even secular scholars date to about 200 years before Christ and Guess what? If you open that up and you compared it to your Old Testament, guess what they're going to say? The same thing. We have thousands of copies of the Bible going back thousands of years, and they say the same thing to what we have in our our modern Greek New Testament and Hebrew Old Testament to like 99% plus. It's the same thing, some tiny variations. And that's what really brings us to our passage today, because today is one of the tiny variations that we find, which brings us to the fifth thing in the step of, well, how did we get our Bibles? And the fifth thing is textual criticism. And if you start to furrow your brow and say, wait, textual criticism, I've heard of that before. There's two types of it. One, there's higher criticism, which I would describe as a bunch of flaming hot garbage, um, where it's basically liberal scholars who believe Well, since God isn't real, he couldn't possibly have inspired the Bible. So here's our take on how the Bible came to be. That's what higher criticism is. And we can reject that because they're starting from a place of, well, God can't have actually done this, right? But we know the heavens declare the glory of God. He's clearly real. So we take a different approach. And that brings us to what we call lower criticism, which is basically, all right, we have these thousands and thousands of copies of the scriptures, And then we have even other resources beyond that to help us know. And we want to take, hey, that tiny, tiny fraction, when it seems to be saying one thing here and uh, something different somewhere else, let's figure that out. And the amazing thing is when you study that, usually they're able to find out what happened. I mean, a majority, most of what happens in those tiny variations is like a name that started getting spelled differently over time. That's what most of the variations are. Are. But then to see one example that we've already briefly looked at in the Gospel of John, go back to John chapter 5. Go back to John chapter 5 and verse 4. John chapter 5 and verse 4. Which, if you have an English standard version, guess what? Verse 4 is not there, is it? Or if you look very carefully, it's down at the bottom in a footnote. And so this is an area where scholars are looking and saying, hey, some of these manuscripts 
have this part in it, and some don't. And by the way, let's just for a quick reminder, John, when he was writing the Gospel of John, wasn't like, all right, chapter 5, verse 1, right? No, we put all in the chapter and verse divisions later because they're pretty helpful. Like, wasn't saying, hey, go to John chapter 5 a lot easier than go back about, well, I don't know which copy you have, so maybe three pages, maybe four pages to find the part where it's talking about the lame man. Yeah, chapters and verses are a lot easier, but they weren't a part of the original. And so scholars, again, not the crazy scholars that, oh, God can't be real, but godly men who have studied this way more than even your average pastor will be able to look at this and say, hey, what's, what's going on? And usually as we study and we want to put a greater weight on the older manuscripts, the, the solution usually becomes clear. Like for instance, if you don't have verse 4 in John 5, John 5 gets a little confusing. Because when the lame man says, well, Jesus, of course I want to be healed, but no one's here to help me in the water. You're like, what in the world is he talking about? But verse 4 explains, hey, an angel of the Lord went down into the pool and stirred the water, and whoever got in first gets healed. Oh, helpful bit of information. So probably what happened is there's a scribe who looks at that and says, you know what, that's kind of confusing, but he knows the story. And so he writes it in the margin as kind of a helpful footnote. But then maybe a couple scribes later comes along and is like, oh, I see that. And he starts copying it in with the rest of the Bible. And then eventually it, it kind of becomes a part of the manuscripts that are getting passed around. But we can look at it and say, hey, I don't think this is originally what John said. It's helpful information though. I'm glad we have a note of it, but we can figure that out. And that's where some people would take kind of what happens here in John 5 and they would say, look, they're deleting stuff from the Bible. And let's just talk about that. That's usually comparing modern English translations to older English translations. And the, the dominant older English translation that people still use today is the King James Version of the Bible, which is an incredible piece of work, one of scholarship, to translate at 1611 when they made this and put the Bible into the language for everybody. And it's also, let's be honest, I mean, it not only standardized the Bible, it standardized the English language for a few hundred years. It was an amazing thing. But here's the thing, the early English translations aren't the standard. We want to go back as old into the manuscripts as we can. And guess what? Over 400 years since the King James came out, we've discovered a lot more manuscripts. Codex Sinaiticus hadn't been found yet. The Dead Sea Scrolls hadn't been found yet. Most of the oldest and best manuscripts that we have of the Bible hadn't even been discovered yet. So we've, we've learned more since then about the oldest manuscripts, the best possible manuscripts. And so usually, again, we can figure out when we see these tiny variations, we can figure out what happened. And we can have confidence, no, this isn't a problem. We have so many copies of the Bible that God has actually preserved it so we can know with a lot of certainty what it actually says. And by the way, of these tiny variations, guess what? Not one of them affects what we believe. It's not like, oh, this, this manuscript says that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but this one says he didn't. What do we do? Or this manuscript says that Jesus is God and this one doesn't. No, they all say the same things about what we're supposed to believe. Like I said, most of them, it's like a name that starts getting misspelled or confused. Not something that's going to throw off our faith. This one in John chapter 5, it's clear, hey, this looks like it was a footnote. And it actually helps us understand what the Bible says 
better. So all of that really brings us to our passage. John, in really chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. And now you see that note, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. So you can go, I mean, you could pull out your phone right now and go to codexsinaticus.org. And you could look at that, and it's, it's awesome. They have, they've scanned the whole thing in. And you can type in a verse, and boom, you can look at it in a copy of the Bible that goes back 1,700 years. Is that pretty amazing? Should that give us confidence in our Bibles? Totally. You type in John 8, 1, and you're going to get John 8, 11. Because that's the first verse that they have in what, again, chapter and verse divisions hadn't even happened at that point. That's the first verse they have of what we have in John 8. So the earliest and best manuscripts, they don't have this this part of John 8 in there. And then you look very early on, people started translating the Bible already into other languages, right around Israel, Syriac, Coptic, which is what they would have spoken in Egypt. And we, ha- we actually have copies of those translations going way, way, way back. And guess what? You open up those early translations, this passage isn't there. So the earliest manuscripts don't have it. But then it starts showing up. And even when you start looking at where it shows up, it's all over the place. Some copies had it in John chapter 7. Some copies had it in John chapter 21. Some copies had it in the Gospel of Luke. So it was, it was all over the place. And so scholars come to this, and they again, godly Bible-believing scholars come to this, and they say, you know, if this doesn't seem to be in the original copy of the Gospel of John. And now that we've talked about, well, what does that mean? Instead of alarm bells going off, when we dig in, we should actually gain confidence. That no, when people say, oh, they've, they've added things to the scriptures or they've taken things out, there is no evidence of that. Or, or the this tiny variations that we do have, we have a record of all of it. That nothing got snuck by us. We know what the word of God is. And, and even the tiny variations, none of it affects what we believe. The the manuscripts that we're finding, they say the same thing of the Bible that you hold in your hand. Which then, how did it get into your hand? That's the last step of translation. Translation. Because what textual criticism does is it takes all the manuscripts and it gives us, all right, here is the Hebrew Old Testament. And here is the Greek New Testament. And then scholars come today and they say, okay, well, we want to put that into English because I doubt there's a lot of Greek New Testaments or Hebrew Old Testaments here today. So we put it into English. And again, the people say, oh, the Bible's been translated so many times. Well, not this one. It's been translated once, straight from the Hebrew and the Greek into English. And yes, there's some wacky translations out there today that kind of get way off from what the Bible is saying. But if you hold a you know, and I'm, this is not an exhaustive list, an ESV or, or a King James Old or New or a New American Standard or the NIV, it matches up with what the Bible says. And they all have their strengths and weaknesses. One, the strength, I think, of the ESV and why we use it is it's a very literal translation, being trying to be very literal to the original languages. But you know what that means? Sometimes it's a little awkward in English. Like when you try to memorize big chunks of the ESV, sometimes it's like, who wrote that sentence? Well, God did. Um, and 
use the Apostle Paul to. And guess what? In Greek, they, they write things differently than we do. But that's what the ESV is trying to do. Or something like the NIV, well, it's a lot easier in English, but it's, it, it's not as literal as some other translations. And so they have some strengths and weaknesses. And if somebody tries to come at you and say, no, no, there's only one uh, translation, remember most of us in the room only speak one language. And if you actually are bilingual and you've had to translate things before, that, that's not the easiest thing. Because sometimes you're faced with, well, I could say this, but that's not really going to make sense to the people I'm talking to. But I could say this, but eh, that's a little bit of There's a lot of difficult choices the Bible translators are making. But at the end of the day, what you can know is, and usually even now, there's so many footnotes and things that explain all the decisions that they made. You can be confident, hey, what I have here in English, this is what God said, right here. And of the tiny percentage where there's some disagreement, well, usually we can figure that out and none of it affects what we believe. You hold the word of God in your hands. Isn't that an amazing thing? And we know how it happened from revelation to inspiration to canonicity to transmission all over the world. We can analyze all of that through textual criticism and we can translate it so you can hold God's word in your hand. Praise God. And I don't believe that happened without God working through history to make it happen. God has protected his word. So what do we do with John chapter 8? And kind of like that one verse in John chapter 5, I think it's something where you know, I don't think this was original to what John wrote, but I am glad it's there. Because as I've studied and I've read so much about, well, how did we get this and where did it come from? And most, again, of the Bible-believing scholars say, it does, because it's all over the place, it doesn't seem like it was there originally, but we also look at it and there's nothing to suggest that this didn't actually happen. And another great thing, even in this passage, it's saying the same thing the rest of the Bible says. But it's a different story, but it matches up. I mean, doesn't that sound like the Pharisees? Doesn't this sound like Jesus? And I think the reason that it has stuck around, that people have latched onto it over the years, is it's very powerful, even in how it expresses the central truths of God's Word. And so I want us to briefly look at it now, and I want to point out a couple things that we see in this passage that are incredibly consistent, and I think powerfully consistent with what we see in God's Word. So let me read this passage for us now, and we'll talk about it briefly. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So as we read that, 
Doesn't that sound like the Pharisees? Doesn't that sound like Jesus? And I just want to point out, especially as we look at those two groups and how they respond to this sinful woman, I think we see some powerful things that are all over the place. I mean, what stands out to me about the Pharisees here is their hypocrisy. That sounds consistent with what we've been reading in the rest of the Gospel of John and what we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I mean, it says here this woman is caught in the act of adultery. Well, if you really stop and take two seconds to think about that, a very obvious question presents itself. Where's the guy? Uh, It takes two to tango, you know what I'm saying? So where's the guy if she was caught in the act of adultery? And I don't think the point is, well, I guess he was faster and got away. No, he wasn't a... I think, and again, this is personal opinion, I think he was in on it. It wouldn't surprise me if the guy is there in the crowd. And this was a trap that was set. And again, the the passage even tells us explicitly in verse 6 that the Pharisees, they said this to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. They don't care about the law. They don't care about this woman. They hate Jesus. And they want to try to pin him somehow. So they concoct, and I think maybe very possibly, they engineer this whole situation. Another thing that's hypocritical, do you know what the Pharisees weren't doing at this time? Stoning people for adultery. In fact, I don't think they were executing anybody. You want to know how I know? Look what it says later in John 18, verse 31. Pilate, he says to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Hmm. So before Pilate, oh, we can't put anybody to death. Before Jesus, eh, shouldn't we put this woman to death, Jesus? Something they weren't even doing. And they're specifically trying to get Jesus in trouble with the Roman authorities. And Jesus, again, this is so very consistent to what we see. Every time they think they're going to trap Jesus, Jesus flips the trap on them every single time. And it says that he writes on the ground. There's a lot of theories about what Jesus wrote. And my take on it is we don't know what he wrote because it doesn't say. I mean, maybe he was writing a verse that kind of rebuked them. Maybe he started writing out their own sins. I, I, I don't know. I don't think we can know for certain. Maybe it was just a stalling tactic because then they keep pressing him. Jesus, no, 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 we need you to answer us. And Jesus calmly stands up and says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And what he's saying there, I think it's a lot more than just, hey guys, are any of you perfect? I think it's more specific than that. I think he's referring to things in the law, saying that somebody who was a participant in the crime couldn't be a part of the punishment of the crime. For instance, if you conspire with somebody else to commit murder, and it happens, even if you're one of the key witnesses saying, yeah, that guy was in on it too, guess what you don't get to do? Throw a stone at him, because you're guilty too. So I don't think Jesus is just speaking, well, you know, which one of us is perfect? I think he's saying, really, guys? If you're so sinless here, why don't you throw the first stone? And again, I think he's calling them out by being like, guys, this is a farce, and you've engineered this whole situation. You, You, not only did you let this, if you caught her in the act, why didn't you stop it before it started? Right, right, you were in on this from the beginning. If you're without sin, throw the first stone. And it says, one by one, 
interesting note, beginning with the older ones, they left. They were proven to be hypocrites. And when we think about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and even try to get, you know, hey, we are like, yeah, those hypocritical Pharisees. Well, what did that look like? And I think one thing that stands out here is how they used God's word. They used God's word to point out other people's sin and even twisted God's word to try to hurt other people instead of being sensitive to God's word pointing out their own sin. They were blind to their own sin. Point number two, as we think about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, don't ignore your own sin as you study scripture. We're starting a new series today that we're calling Light in the Darkness, which we'll see next week when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But this week, we want to talk about the light of a preserved Bible. And I want to highlight even how the things we see in this passage are consistent with what we see elsewhere in Scripture and how we should use Scripture. Don't ignore your own sin as you study Scripture because it is easy to use the Bible and see sin in other people. Have you noticed that? I mean, for instance, it's really easy to see the sin of the characters in the Bible. Exhibit A, the Pharisees. It's really easy to see, wow, the Pharisees, they were messed up. And we need to be a little bit careful because remember that, that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector where the Pharisee says, God, thank you so much that I'm not like this sinful tax collector over here. Well, if we're not careful and we start saying, oh man, look at these Pharisees, look at these Pharisees, you know what we start basically saying? God, thank you that I'm not like this sinful Pharisee over here. And we start kind of just using scripture to, oh man, look at them. Or, you know, oh, look at the silly Pharisees. Or, oh, look at those silly Israelites not trusting God again. When at some point we need to be looking at God's word and say, yikes, silly me. Why do I think this? Why am I doing this? That's not what God would want me to do. We can't ignore what the Bible is trying to say to us. Not only is it real easy to see the sin of the characters in the Bible, it's also really easy to see the sin of our culture as we read the Bible, right? I mean, we live in a messed up culture. And you see it in something we're going to see a lot more of in the headlines based on even stuff that's happened this weekend, that there's going to be a lot more talk about abortion in our nation. When we as Bible-believing Christians should say, that's, that's messed up, that's not right, that's murder. Or even now, there's a lot of talk about, you know, we see the sexual revolution happening in our culture, or the, now the LGBTQ revolution going on in our culture, and it's easy for us to say, yeah, I'm reading the Bible, man, our world is so messed up. And, it, and don't get me wrong, it is. And that's why it's disappointing when you see a pastor on some news show and they ask him a question like, is abortion sin or is homosexuality sin or, you know, are Muslims going to heaven or are Mormons going to heaven? And the pastor just says, you know, gee, gee, golly, I don't want to judge anybody, right? No, the Bible gives us clear answers to all those questions. Yes, abortion is sin. Yes, homosexuality is sin. Yes, uh, Muslims and Mormons, they don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus. They don't believe the gospel. No, they're not saved. There are clear answers. But there's a huge problem if that's all that we're saying and all that we're seeing. If we're not realizing, I need a Savior. If we use God's word to just start feeling morally superior about everybody else and not looking in the mirror and seeing our own sin, we're misusing the Bible like the Pharisees did. When we study the Bible, we should realize, I need a Savior. And that's what leads us to the end of the story. And that's why I think this story has stuck around because of the power of what Jesus says to this woman. When everybody leaves and Jesus says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. 
And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, we see that as such a powerful picture with this woman before Christ. But again, consistent with what we read in the rest of the Bible. And if you're coming to the Bible, point number three, one thing you should do as you read God's word is behold the astounding forgiveness of Jesus. Behold the astounding forgiveness of Jesus. He sees this sinful woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Really reminds me, flip with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. You know what we see in Romans 8? The same thing. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. And then you know what we see? Go down to verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And he goes on to say, by the Spirit, we should put to death the deeds of the flesh. You know what that sounds like? Go and from now on sin no more. That if you put your faith in Christ... Your sin is forgiven, you are not condemned, and you are now called to go and to live the new life that Christ has given you. And I don't think we see Jesus treat sin any differently in this passage in, in John 8 than we see elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus never just brushes sin aside. That's not what he's doing. He doesn't tell the woman, you know what, sexual immorality is not a big deal. Don't worry about it. No, he, he never says that. He just says, I'm not going to condemn you. And the rest of the New Testament, it never says, oh, sin's not a big deal. It actually says, no, 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 sin's a huge deal. But guess what? Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So that every single one of us, no matter what we've done, can be forgiven. And more than just forgiven, we can be changed. One last passage, if you're in Romans, just go over to the next book, 1 Corinthians 6. And we see this. Sin is not treated lightly in this passage. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Even it says, hey, don't, don't let anybody lie to you. If we live a life of sin that's dominated by sin, we're not on the path to heaven. Sin is not something to be taken lightly, but then we get to verse 11. But that doesn't mean that sin can't be dealt with. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that's true of this room today. Such were some of you, some of us. But we've experienced the forgiveness of Christ. And not only that, the, the washing and the sanctification where he's changed our hearts to live differently. Jesus is in the business of acknowledging the seriousness of sin by taking people who put their faith in him and forgiving that sin and setting them on a different course. We, can't, we shouldn't be able to read the Bible like the Pharisees did without being confronted with our own sin. But we also shouldn't be able to read the Bible without being confronted by a Savior who forgives sin. And that's all over the Bible. 
And so as you leave here today, there's two things I hope you walk away with. And one is I, I hope you leave here more confident in your Bible than ever before. Even in the, the Bible that you hold in your hands, you know this is the word of God. And even when the culture tries to challenge it, I know why they're wrong and why this is the word of God. And that you would also leave knowing one of the most central messages in the Bible, that yes, we are sinners and our sin is serious, but there is forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ. That although our sins are red like crimson, we can be washed white as snow. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, as we come to this interesting passage today, Lord, we want to just take this opportunity to thank you for your word. You have revealed yourself to us, and you have worked through amazing ways to preserve your word throughout centuries, throughout millennia, God, that even over time, God, now we have more access to your word than any generation in history, God. I thank you for that. I even pray, God, as another application of all we've talked about today, that we wouldn't waste that, that we would dig into your word, which is right in front of us every single day. God, may we be faithful to read it and to study it. And God, we thank you, Lord, for the powerful things that we do see in this passage that are confirmed all over the Bible. Lord, yes, we need to be confronted with our sin, but Jesus Christ is the Savior. There is full, free, and everlasting forgiveness to be found in him. God, I pray if there's anybody here today that doesn't know that forgiveness, that today would be the day that they call out to you, God. I pray that you wouldn't let anybody leave here today without realizing that they are a sinner. And I pray that you wouldn't let anybody leave here today without faith in Jesus Christ to be the Savior for their sin. And God, may we leave here today with joy and with confidence. God, confidence in your word, that what we hold in your hand, what we know, what you've said, what we can be confident of that, and God, to know the forgiveness of sins. Lord, so we lift this all up to you. We praise your holy name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.